Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. It's incredible that here we are, episode 74. That's 74 weeks into a war the British believed would be over in less than 12 weeks at most. The guerrilla campaign is moving swiftly ahead, while in the Northern Cape, the great De Wet hunt is in full swing. In the Eastern Transvaal, General Louis Boerter had attacked the British in a surprise move on the 10th of February, adding to the confusion the English troops were experiencing. Between Christian de Wet's confident departure from the northwestern reaches of the Orange Free State into the Cape Colony, it would take the entire month of February for his men to complete a dash back across the Orange River in defeat. In the western Transvaal, General Coeur de la Rey was stranded, as many of his men were without their biggest asset, horses. Sickness and exhaustion had led to many dying, and the general was biding his time. He was also waiting for word from Christian de Wet in the Cape, who, as we'll hear later in this podcast, was actually desperately trying to avoid capture as a huge British force hunted him down. Coeur de la Rey had other problems. His men were becoming less enthusiastic by the day about joining de Wet in the Cape in their attempts to foment an uprising. The stirring memories of their December successes against the British were fading. Delaray was hidden in the bushy hills west of Rustenburg, where he was ensconced with a small group of hand-picked men and the only fresh horses they had. Most of the Western Transvaal burghers had actually gone home. British commander Methuen bumped into a large group of Boers on the 18th of February in the southwest of the Transvaal and defeated them in a hard-fought action. It was noticeable that the tables were turning. In that clash, Methuen had been outnumbered by the Boers and yet had defeated the once invincible commanders. Around Johannesburg and Pretoria, civilian life was returning to normal with no sign of the guerrilla bands close by. Farms began producing food, mines were operating and small-scale manufacturing in British-run factories had begun once more. So with De Wet wriggling around to escape capture in the Cape and De La Rey becalmed in the northwest, we turn our sights initially on the eastern Transvaal where General Louis Boerter was causing the English some discomfort. Lord Kitchener had selected this region for his main offensive and we've discussed this in previous podcasts. He was playing for a rich prize, as Rain Kruger writes in his book on the Boer War called Goodbye Dolly Gray. Louis Buta was a very different sort of leader than Delaray and De Wet. Where De Wet was like a whiplash, a loose cannon in a sense, and Delaray was the cautious and astute thinking general, Buta was the most aware of the repercussions for the Boers the longer the war continued. Buta was not as ruthless in his actions as De Wet or even Smuts. He was prone to bouts of despair that could not be hidden from his troops. Every Boer leader was aware that for each day the struggle continued, greater misery would be heaped upon their people and lengthened the imprisonment of their brothers in places like Bermuda, Ceylon, St. Helena, India and even the West Indies generally. With his deep emotion and wide vision, he felt keenly the conflict between liberty for his people and the reality of their condition. Concentration camps had incarcerated tens of thousands of Boer women and children and they had begun to die through disease. It was still early days and most of the terrible stories had yet to filter through to the guerrilla commanders, but they were beginning to get wind of what was happening in these camps. 
Now Boerter watched Kitchener's offensive roll eastwards towards his units, and also he watched how they burned each farm as they went. It was scorched earth at its worst. General French, the cavalry commander, had 21,000 men at his disposal, with one-third of these being medical, engineering and logistics support. His force was divvied up into seven columns. Five were placed at intervals in a front east of the Johannesburg to Pretoria line, in case the Boers tried to puncture this vital link. This front then moved in a line stretching north to south towards the Delagoa and Natal railway lines, keeping in constant contact through heliographs and lamps. This appeared to be an impenetrable barrier, rolling east like a huge broom sweeping all before it. But the railways diverged, and this meant bigger gaps between these five columns. As they diverged, the remaining two columns of the seven set off in a southerly direction, extending the barrier in a curve to enclose the region around Ermelo, a small town near Swaziland. General French was hoping that Boerter's force would be crushed against Swaziland and the northern forces of the English based in Natal. This operation was the prototype of what became known as a drive. This term was normally used in hunting animals, where beaters would gather and noisily drive their quarry into a confined space where the waiting hunters would be able to shoot the poor animals like fish in a barrel. The very same technique was being used by the British as they sought to roll up the Boers in the eastern Transvaal. Strict instructions were issued that, as each farm was secured, all the inhabitants, the black workers, old and young men, as well as all the women and children, be rounded up and sent to the railway lines. From there, they would be squeezed into animal trucks and sent to concentration camps, which is exactly the system employed in the Second World War by the Nazis to send Jews to their concentration camps. All crops, stocks and equipment were seized or destroyed. General French's men began to appear as locusts to the local population, with the swirling black smoke hanging in the air once they had appeared at a farm, leaving buildings blown up and burning, crops raised, entire districts left in a ghostly silence depopulated. As the units diverged, they left gaps. It was through one of these that General Bayers and his commanders slipped through heading back into the western Transvaal from the east. Bayers eventually headed all the way to the northern Transvaal in a great circuitous route via the Rustenburg Mountains. But Louis Butter's commander remained east of General French's columns in the vicinity of Ermelo. By the 5th of February, they were in an arc to the east of the town and around 18 kilometers away. Boerter was acutely aware of his position and had no desire to be trapped. Refugees were flooding through the town, heading further east, with some even preferring to head to Swaziland or the lowlands in Portuguese East Africa. Boerter decided to send a small commando of 1,500 men to protect these Boer civilians as they travelled into the Lowfelt, squeezed between the Swaziland border as well as the Zulu to the south and the Natal border. 2,500 other men were to ride with General Boerter as he concocted a surprise for the advancing British columns. Boerter and his men left on the night of 5th of February and their mission was secret. The extreme north of the British advance guard curved towards Ermelo and was comprised of a column of 3,500 men under Smith Dorian. He was an extremely capable leader and had defeated the Boers in a number of skirmishes through the last year. This column arrived at a small plateau which rose from the shore of Lake Chrissy, northeast of Ermelo. Smith Dorian had placed the transport 
the spare horses and artillery in the centre of the plateau, with troops around the edge and pickets on the slopes. The troops were relaxed, as Smith Dorian had no reason to expect any form of attack. He had heard about the Boers and their women and children and black workers streaming out of the region to the southeast. Before dawn the next day, the 6th of February, men were awoken by a flurry of rifle fire, then the pounding of hooves as the lines of horses stampeded. They were under attack in the mist, worsened by the pre-dawn darkness and cold. Louis Butter had achieved complete surprise, but this was not the British army of a year ago, wilting and faltering and confused about Boer strategy. Smith Dorian had imposed a strict vigilance culture into his columns, combined with a steadiness under attack. It was fortunate for these English soldiers that he had been so disciplined and specific. The West, Yorkshire and the Suffolks rallied quickly and suddenly the Boer attackers were on their defensive. The initiative was lost. Both the British and Boers registered roughly the same number of casualties in this clash, 80 men in all. The British had learned how to respond to a surprise by cautious control of the immediate situation, which included not standing up and yelling, For Queen and Country, attack! But rather, seek cover, stay low, and maintain as much firepower forward as possible. Louis Boutet gave the order to withdraw. Daybreak brought a thick fog which actually protected the Boers against any sort of pursuit. It would have baffled anyone in its thickness. Smith Dorian was in no mood to chase the Boers. He had trained his men to respond to sudden and surprise attacks, but it was he who was completely taken aback at the brazenness of the Boer action. 21,000 men moving on the felt and the Boer force of perhaps 1,200 strikes at its powerful left flank. Preposterous. But later the same day, the British column overran Ermelo. It was deserted, another ghost town. Residents had fled southwest to Petrentif. Thousands of Boers, mostly civilians, were now trying to cross the upper Vaal River, but the pure volume of people meant they were delayed for hours. Allenby's advance column approached Petrotif, but Boer's commando held them off in a skillful set of assaults. The British columns halted and spread out, burning all farms they found and blowing up the buildings. Smith Dorian was also taking a breath before diving into the really difficult country that awaited and he set up a plan for future supplies. They were to move away from the railway line, and a constant and safely defended flow of ammunition, food, and even water was required. And it was then, on the 13th of February, that General Louis Boutte was to be shocked by his wife. She sent a letter, which arrived on that day, and which outlined a proposal by Lord Kitchener that the two leaders meet to discuss possible terms of peace. What a shock! Here was Boerta in the middle of a campaign, and he receives a letter from his wife, who suggests he meet with the enemy? Of course, he agreed. Kitchener had been shrewd. The terror campaign and the concentration camps were both weighing heavily on the citizens of South Africa, and particularly the Transvaalers. Another reason to meet was the impetuosity of General Christian de Wett. His individual actions had put pay to Smuts's plan for all Boer forces to join up for a massive attack on Johannesburg, where they were supposed to destroy the gold mines, then head off in separate directions invading the Cape and Natal. Instead, de Wet had galloped off, refusing to wait for his comrades to gather themselves. Worse, he didn't trust them to actually carry through with any plans. 
After refusing to answer letters sent by Louis Butter and Jan Smuts, De Wet had set off and crossed the Orange River, entering the Cape Colony on the 10th of February. He had more faith in the letters that had come from his own officers. Assistant Chief Commandant Herzog, Commandant Kritzinger and Captain Skippers had been operating in the Cape since December 1900 and were optimistic about the mood among Cape Afrikaners. De Wet just needed to appear in person, they believed, and it would unleash a mass uprising in the colony. And the recent wave of destruction being carried out by the British demanded some form of reprisal. Free State President Stain, who was travelling with the vet, wanted this to be delivered on or around the 14th of February. That was Valentine's Day, but more importantly, it was exactly a year after Lord Roberts had invaded the Orange Free State. The main challenge for De Wet was the British knew what his plan was and were determined to stop him. Kitchener had actually withdrawn two columns from his dragnet operation in the eastern Transvaal to go after De Wet, while extra troops were being transferred by train to the border area in order to apprehend him there. They narrowly missed De Wet when he crossed the Orange River at Sand Drift, but his problems were just beginning. His men were exhausted and fighting had not even started. They had travelled 400 kilometres since leaving the northern Free State and the journey had taken its toll. Hundreds of men had dropped out on the way, afraid of what was to come. Of the 3,000 men who'd begun the ride with the vet, only 2,000 remained. They had lost many horses and those that remained were worn out. During the night, we marched to Hondebluff River, he writes in his book Three Years War. Hondebluff means barking dog. The following morning, we found that there was no grass for the horses, for the locusts had eaten it all. The horses' poor creatures were very hungry, also much exhausted by these forced marches. There were no horses in the district to purchase or borrow. He had to wait for the units he'd sent off as a diversion. He'd sent Generals Furnemann and Ferry to the east with a large contingent of men to give the British the impression he was heading in that direction. While that had worked to some extent... It also meant he had a much weakened commando. This was a huge gamble, as Martin Bosenbrook writes in his work on the Boer War, published in 2013. The area he was in was cut in three places by railway lines, which gave the British a huge advantage over him. For once, they were far more mobile than he, and as we've heard in this series, those who were the most mobile had the initiative. If the British stumbled on his gambit and moved fast, they would trap their biggest quarry. And that's almost what happened. Combat troops brought to the area by train blocked De Wet's route. He couldn't continue south and penetrate deeper into the Cape Colony. A small detachment he'd send under the command of Vainant Malan managed to slip through this dragnet, but his larger commander had no chance of escaping detection. So he turned westwards, where immediately before him lay one of these railway lines. They were heavily guarded along the miles of dead straight lines as these tracks crossed a semi-desert region. But it was rainy season, and there were natural areas of wetland and swamps that form here in summer, adding to the problems facing De Wet. The great English force was behind us, and when night fell the enemy was not more than five miles from us. There were constant low-level skirmishes and firefights. The exhausted men could not sleep and were fighting back intermittently. Then they arrived at the railway line. It was at the hour of sunset, shortly before we came to the swamp 
that I shall presently describe that my scouts came across fifteen of the enemy. Most of the fifteen got away, but one was shot dead and several captured. However, he now faced the swamp. Picture exhausted men as they began crossing the half-mile-wide stretch of water that was knee-deep and at places deeper. The mud clung to their feet, horses sank up to their girths. Somehow, the fourteen hundred riders had to get over the swamp. They could not go around, and they could not turn back. Many of the men lost their balance as their horses struggled in the mud, and several of the burghers had to dismount and lead their poor, tired-out animals, writes the vet. The artillery he was dragging along, as well as the wagons, could hardly move in the muck. The wagons needed fifty oxen each to drive through this marshland, and of course, all of this had to be done in silence and at night. At last, we got the guns through, and succeeded in getting a trolley and the little wagon which carried my documents and papers safely to the other side. But it was impossible to move the ammunition and flower wagons when they had entered the swamp. It was a night which I shall never forget. It was close to daybreak, and he had to move across the railway line immediately, no hesitation. He ordered General Faree to remain with the wagons, along with 100 men, and to try to get them through somehow, while the rest of the commando rushed over the railway line. Dawn broke. It was the morning of the 15th of February. De Vette had so far been unable to deliver a result as requested by President Steyn. Most of the burghers were now walking alongside their horses. Also walking with the commander were 90 British prisoners they had captured during the last two weeks. I could not release them because I did not want them to tell the enemy how exhausted our horses were. I pitied the poor Tommies, but what else could I do but order them to march with me? Like the Boers, the British prisoners were on their last legs, staggering in the darkness as they were pushed forward by their captors. It was the closest of calls, but somehow this group of men managed to make its way across the feared railway line undiscovered. When the sun rose, one could see what a terrible condition the burghers were in. On every man's face, utter exhaustion could be read. But how could it have been otherwise? They didn't even have time to cook anything, chewing their bultong or jerked beef. Rain began to fall in torrents, and everyone was wet to the skin. All were covered in mud from the swamp. Twenty-four hours had now elapsed without the men being able to lie down and rest. No one could sleep. Finally, he found grass for the horses and ordered his men to kill one of the sheep that they had bought from a farmer nearby. Sheep farming is the main occupation in this part of the Northern Cape to this day. The lamb remains a delicacy in South Africa, with the animals eating a tasty vegetation of the Karoo with its herb-like texture. Suddenly they were roused by the sound of an explosion. General Faree had been unable to save the wagons, and the British had stumbled on his company of men, and they had ridden away. The English had blown up the wagons. Still, the men had eaten well, they had good water from the rains, their horses were feeding, and De Vette ordered everyone to rest using their saddles as pillows. The burghers whom I had with me were of the right stamp, De Vette said, and were prepared to sacrifice everything for the freedom of the people. If anyone had asked them whether they were ready to undergo any further hardships, they would have replied that a hundred swamps would not discourage them. It's fortunate for De Vette that he had men of that calibre, for their nightmare was only just beginning. The British were far more adept at fighting across South Africa's open ground after a year of learning the rules of war in Africa and were going to make De Vette's commando suffer for the rest of February. 
We'll return to the trials and tribulations they face next week and learn a little more about the Americans fighting for the British and the Boers. Please remember to rate the podcast on iTunes and also you can send me direct messages on Twitter at Des Latham or through the website abwarpodcast.com. Until next week, goodbye. Een zonder gedaan langs die mooie vierste val, het zee voor oorlogsdag